Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about climate denial. (laughs) Climate deniers, climate denial strategies, and kind of like, how did we get to the point where we can literally see the world burning half the year in Australia, half the year in North America, mudslides all around, and people are still like, "Mm, maybe climate change isn't real, or "Mm, maybe climate change is a good thing. How did that happen, Kristen? Uh, money. Money is why it happened in some, but uh, we're going to talk a lot more. <laughs> Capitalism. Okay, well, that's the end of this episode. This was a quick one. <laughs> uh, no, it's very much not going to be a quick one. I think this one will probably end up being a two-parter. We're, we'll see what happens as we go, but I do have quite a lot of research. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it'll be that depressing, though, because what I've tried to do is talk about like really hard climate denial happens today, but it's not that common anymore because we're already seeing the world burn. But like, what are the other softer forms of climate denial that exist today? And how can you combat it? So hopefully this will be a somewhat uplifting episode. We'll see though. (laughs) So um, Kyla, uh, do you have any experience with climate denial? Um, Have you encountered it in your life? That's a really interesting question that I was not prepared for. You know, (laughs) I can't think of any actual specific examples. Like I don't think I know any climate deniers, even in like my fairly, you know, conservative part of my family. Like it's so it's an abstract idea to me where I'm like, do these people even really exist? And I'm pretty sure they do because I've heard other people's firsthand accounts. But even even people who are like not climate stressed at all are still like, yeah, it's probably happening, but it's not my problem. That's like the closest I've ever gotten to climate denial. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because I think as we're going through the episode and I talk about some climate denial strategies, I'm pretty sure that you'll think about things that you have experienced in your life. So even though like we often think about climate denial as this really extreme argument that like the earth's not warming or if it is, it's because of like something, something natural cycles or whatever the bullshit is. But it's actually got a lot of subtler forms as well um, that are a lot more common and that I think people come up against in their everyday lives without even really thinking about it. So it should hopefully make for an interesting episode. Um, I should say that a lot of the research for this episode comes from a book by climate scientist Michael E. Mann, um, his book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. There were a few places where I disagreed with him, but I generally thought it was a really good book. So um, We'll talk about sort of what his arguments are in a few points where I disagree with them, but otherwise generally does a good job of sort of explaining that the old climate war has been won, so climate denial in its harshest forms are largely retreating, but there is a new climate war that's ongoing, and that's the war for actually doing something about climate change. So we need to be sort of ready to combat that. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to talk about um, like the history of climate change denial a little bit, just because I think, at least for me as a millennial who sort of grew up, I remember some of this stuff, like some of the fights around the Kyoto Protocol and things like that. But it's not something that I sort of remember that well. So for me anyway, it was helpful to sort of refresh my memory of the history. I think it probably will be for people as well. And there are actually some things that I just didn't know because 
I was being a child while a lot of this <laughs> stuff was happening. <laughs> um, so just for people to get some context, so the first climate war, what Michael Mann calls the first climate war, that war to recognize climate change as real and as human-caused, it's something that really started in the 1980s. Um, and it's important to sort of situate that a little bit first, um, to mention that the 1970s was sort of this explosive time for environmentalism. It was really this period in which you get the birth of the modern environmental movement. There's a lot of activism that's happening. Uh, the first Earth Day happens in 1971. And throughout the 70s, you start to get a lot of environmental treaties internationally, as well as a lot of environmental laws. So things like the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, those are all happening in the 70s. This is a big time for environmentalism. Yeah, and we can thank Richard Nixon for those, can't we? I have no idea. <laughs> Richard Nixon was behind a lot of the climate-friendly movements of, of the early days, wildly. He's like one of the most green presidents the United States has ever had. I, I, I'm surprised it didn't come up in your research, but I guess you started in like more in the 80s. But yeah, we can thank Richard Nixon, climate hero, for a lot of that stuff. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> Kristen, everybody is is a three-dimensional person, you know? <laughs> sure. Uh, Nixon was also just drunk all the time, as I remember, but <laughs> but this is not this is not a podcast episode about Richard Nixon. I just wanted to sort of talk about the 70s just to to give you that context, right? That environmentalists are really starting to win big battles in the 70s. And it's not really so much about climate change, but it is starting to become about these like big environmental issues like, you know, litter, cutting down trees, ah, the ozone layer, that's all starting to happen in the 70s and 80s. Even before that, though, um, by the 1950s, scientists actually knew that climate change could present significant risks to people um, and to, like, ecosystems and things like that. Um, and it was something that, like, was well known enough that in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson actually he delivered a special message to Congress warning about the potential dangers of the changing climate. So this is something that like was already known prior to the 1980s, but really the battle doesn't start ramping up to then. Some more important context is that there is now evidence that by the 1970s, several fossil fuel companies did know that their products were warming the planet. So that link was already something that was known by major fossil fuel industries even before this sort of conflict comes to the fore. And we know that um, because of leaked internal documents. One of the famous ones was from ExxonMobil in the 1970s. But there's a whole bunch of other internal company and trade association documents uh, that are encompassed in something called the deception dossiers that basically show that the fossil fuel industry knew about human caused climate change and uh, they actually tried to hide it. All right. So that kind of sets the stage for the 80s. It's the late 80s, and there's this NASA scientist named James Hansen, um, and he gives this sort of famous testimony in 1988 about climate change. And it was really powerful because it was the most emphatic and the most widely publicized statement that had been made about climate change at the time. Um, and it also occurred during a record heat wave. So just to set that context a little bit, it felt real for people. Um, and Hansen's testimony sounded the alarm on climate change, and it's his testimony really did start to stimulate action. Even at the time, he faced some battles as well. In 1989, he actually um, made news again when he announced that the White House had actually been editing his written testimony to downplay the impact of his statements. 
And that was sort of one of the opening salvos in the war for climate science. (laughs) So it's the late 80s, early 90s. By the early 1990s, uh, importantly, Kyla and I were born. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I started to exist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But also importantly, climate action was something that was starting to move. um, And the forces of climate inactivism were also sort of assembling and marshalling their forces. Uh, 1992 is a big year. It was the year that the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed. So it's sort of a big international treaty on combating climate change. If you hear about the Conference of the Parties or the COPs that happen every year, that is linked to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change or the UNFCCC. 1995 was a really big year as well because it was the final plenary for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's second assessment report. You might remember the IPCC from all the scary reports about how we're all going to die, but this was like a really early report from them. And basically what the IPCC reports do is they assemble the known sort of climate science and they report on it. It's a kind of interesting process because it is political, even though it's supposed to be about science. And one of the first major battles uh, with climate deniers happened in trying to decide the language on the second assessment report. So by this time, the scientific consensus was pretty clear, but the plenary really featured this fierce debate over whether climate change was detectable or not. And some fossil fuel producing countries were big on the side of downplaying the language, whereas the scientists wanted stronger language, um, and they ended up with sort of weak sauce language. So the stage was set for IPCC reports in the future, (laughs) where that happens a lot to this day. So the mid-90s, you're starting to see action. In 1997, the Kyoto Protocol signed as a major treaty on climate that got sort of stymied by the fact that the United States never actually joined. But Canada also pulled out of it. So, like, we don't have moral high ground on this one. Uh, 1998 was something called the Oregon Petition, which I had never heard of. Have you, have you ever heard of the Oregon Petition? No. Is what? Tell me about it. <laughs> So the Oregon petition, it was a disinformation campaign that was meant to sow doubt about the scientific consensus on climate change. So it was circulated first, um, like 1998. So it's like a reaction to the Kyoto Protocol. It was organized and circulated by Arthur B. Robinson and promoted by Frederick Seitz, who's a prominent climate denier and also the chairman of an influential right-wing think tank called the George C. Marshall Institute. So Frederick Seitz is a really important name to know. He's a big climate denier. Is he still around? Is he still... Um, I don't think so. <laughs> but he is known as the granddaddy of denialism. So I think he's dead, but I don't know for sure. You don't hear his name a lot anymore if he is alive. <laughs> Uh, So the Oregon petition, it was framed basically as a petition against the Kyoto Protocol. um, And the the guy that circulated it, Arthur Robinson, he asserted in 2008 that the petition had over 31,000 signatories. But the list has really been criticized by its lack of verification. um, And like some of the names were pretty sus, um, like Charles Darwin was on there. There was a member of the Spice Girls. There were some Star Wars characters. So (laughs) to the extent, like, who knows how many of those people were real and um, of those, how many of them were scientists, which was kind of the claim. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) A lot of scientists also (laughs) 
were on the list and they were like, I never signed this. I don't agree with it. Oh my God. And then where where did they circulate this? They were like, oh, look, all these people agree that climate change should be questioned. Yeah, they circulated it everywhere, Kyla. It was apparently a big deal. I don't know. Yeah, so it, this is like a really sketchy petition. It also like really has no evidence to back the claims that were being made, but it was there to sort of question the climate science. And Fox News was like, look, we have an expert here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Uh, Another really major moment in climate denial was something in 2002. Um, I had also not heard of this, but it's interesting. Um, It's called the Luntz Memo. So this is from a guy named Frank Luntz, um, who is a Republican pollster. He, I think, is still around. And he wrote a memo that was leaked in 2002, where basically he warned his Republican clients that if the public should come to believe that the scientific issues around climate change are settled that their views on it are going to change. So he was like, okay, like you really can't allow the scientific consensus to be clear. So you should reposition global warming as something that's a theory rather than a fact to sow doubt was basically the claim. So that ended up being the strategy. <laughs> but it was a, the leak was important because it was a transparent indication of that. But why, Kristen, why did these people want to deny climate change? What was their motivation? <laughs> I mean, I can't really speak to Frank Luntz's motivation, um, but I think a lot of them are being funded by fossil fuel companies. A lot of them are sort of like ideological free marketers that don't want environmental regulation, blah, blah, blah. You know, Even if it's like burning the planet, they're like, oh, the free market will <laughs> lead us right into oblivion. And that's the way that like God wants it. Like what? <laughs> Yeah, and and in the meantime, value was created for shareholders. (laughs) Fuck me. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) All right. November 2009, another really important time for climate deniers. Something called ClimateGate. Had you ever heard of ClimateGate? Um, it doesn't sound familiar. I only know Pizzagate. So this was a less fun gate. Um, actually, Pizzagate's also not fun. No, Pizzagate was horrific. I'm, you know, I'm still going to stand by this. This was a less fun gate, even so. Uh- <laughs> Neither of which being fun. <laughs> it's not about pedophilia, but it is about cooking our planet. So, you know, it's, they're not, neither of them are fun. Um, so ClimateGate was a basically like somebody hacked um, a university email server You know, Clinton's emails, that whole thing? Yes. This was like the OG Clinton's emails. (laughs) So it was like a university server was uh, hacked and thousands of climate scientists' emails were leaked, like right ahead of the Copenhagen uh, COP. So the like conference of the parties, it's this like big climate summit that happens every year. In 2009, they were thinking this Copenhagen summit is going to be when we finally get a treaty to replace the Kyoto Protocol. It's going to be a really big deal. Everybody was really optimistic about it. Right before that summit happens, these leaked emails come out. And there's like thousands of emails, so there's not time to go through it like before the conference of the parties. So all these climate deniers are coming out, taking emails out of context, you know, misrepresenting quotes, and using like scientific jargon um, to confuse the public um, into falsely claiming that these emails showed a scientific conspiracy to manipulate data to like show that climate change was real. So, so for this conspiracy that that they expect scientists are are holding, I know 
I know right-wing conspiracies never make sense, but can you explain to me anyways, Kristen, what would the scientists have gained by, like, <laughs> creating climate change? Like, what's what's the benefit for them by insisting this thing that's not real is real? Yeah, I honestly have no idea. Uh <laughs> you know, like, 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 it's just, think about it for a moment, and it's like, yeah, it lying about climate change doesn't actually benefit anyone unless you're lying that it's not real and you're a fossil fuel company. But if you're a scientist, like, what's the point? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they thought they were getting money from Big Solar back in 2009. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine, Kristen, where we would be today if in 2008, after the financial crisis, instead of like paying off all of those companies that like, and then all of those money, all of that money just went into like executive pockets. But whatever, if we had invested instead in like green jobs, what where we would be now? It makes me so angry. <laughs> 2009, also a time in which um, because. So in the UK, the Green New Deal as a concept had started to become promoted around this time. And it was linked to like Occupy Wall Street movements and the financial crisis. It was a really like, at least in the UK, a big rallying point. So there really was like a critical juncture that could have happened um, where you could have had a just transition kickoff. But instead, you get Climate Gate where everybody like makes a big deal about all these emails Oh, the climate scientists emails. Um, <laughs> and there are a bunch of like investigations in both the US and the UK. And at the end of the day, the investigations all find that the scientists were like, had done nothing wrong. <laughs> it was all completely fine. And the only wrongdoing was whoever hacked the emails. But by that time, of course, like the damage is already done. And the Copenhagen Conference of the Parties failed to really generate anything meaningful. So yeah, then we um, we don't really have a lot of major bombs. Eventually in 2015, the Paris Agreement is signed. But um, I think, as a lot of us know, like, you know, it was a big deal, but it, it didn't really tie to any binding targets. Like, so questionable to what extent people are actually going to meet the disclosures that they've signed on to with Paris um, so we'll we'll see what happens. Well, not only that, but like we Canada particularly is well beyond exceeding what we promised we would and nobody is within t target even though those targets were like softballs. You know what I mean? So like the Paris agreement was really exciting when it happened, but it's been an like it's just been it's just been a failure. It's not been what we needed it to be at all. Yeah, no, completely. And uh I mean, I think after 2009, uh, you you start to get into this new phase of the, the climate war. So now we're fighting climate deniers on action more so than on whether climate change is actually real. So to that extent, like the Paris Agreement and like the current era is different. We don't a lot of the times have prominent debates about, is it just like natural planetary cycles. Like that's not a thing that we talk about in mainstream debates anymore, but it definitely was like in the, the early 2000s and late 1990s. So we are in a new phase. There is progress, but there are still a lot of major barriers that we're going to talk about. I do want to highlight a few um, major anti-climate front groups. Just a quick note that there are lots and lots and lots and lots of others, and they all have like innocuous sounding names. So it can be really hard to identify which organizations are climate deniers. Um, and that is one challenge, right? But here, here are some of the big ones. So one is the Global Climate Coalition, or GCC. Um, and it was an industry lobby group that opposed climate action and publicly challenged climate science. So um, it's one of the early players is why um, the Global Climate Coalition was important. 
So it was formed in 1989, and it included ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron, the American Petroleum Institute, and others. So that was a big one in like early climate denial. One that you might have heard of is the Heartland Institute. It sounds familiar, but I don't think I do know it. Yeah, so it's a, a right-wing think tank. It's uh, known for climate denial, but it was actually founded in the 80s to lobby against smoking bans. That was like the <laughs> initial impetus for this organization. Um, but since the 2000s, it's become a leading promoter of climate denial. So you'll, I think you'll hear the Heartland Institute come up a few times in the rest of the episode. So the Institute doesn't disclose its funders anymore, but we know that ExxonMobil was a contributor, um, as was Philip Morris, the tobacco company, Pfizer, and some other pharmaceutical groups, and as well as some conservative foundations like the John M. Olin Foundation and the Charles G. Koch Charitable Foundation. So it's a big amalgam of industry interests and also like far-right funders. This is so wild because like, we, we're living in an age of like extreme conspiracy belief and and it's hard to blame people when there's actual conspiracies everywhere and it's hard because then it's like, well, if this is true, then maybe why not like have a flat earth? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's so bonkers. It's like, oh, we all of these people conspiring together to k destroy the planet. And it's like, yeah, actually. So that it's like, oh, yeah, maybe literally every other conspiracy is true. Who knows? You know, like, I mean, I know that's not the case. And it's very easy to tell the difference between a real conspiracy <laughs> and a fake one. But it's also really easy to just be like, well, fuck it. Everything must be a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and one pattern that you're going to notice when I'm listing these organizations is that um, a lot of them are funded by Coke Industries or the Coke Brothers. Um, so I would really recommend there's a book called Dark Money by Jane Meyer that goes into the Koch brothers and um, all the like shadowy organizations that they fund. It's not specifically on climate denial, but if you want to get a handle on like who supports like the far right, um, a lot of which is climate denial, that's a really good book. Um, so another organization, um, which is also Koch funded, is uh, Americans for Prosperity. Um, and it's a conservative political advocacy group. Uh, it is one of the most influential American conservative organizations. So if you are American, you've almost certainly heard of Americans for Prosperity. They are notable for helping to transform the Tea Party into a political force. Um, and they've also opposed action on climate change. Then there's another organization that you may have heard of, or maybe not, called the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. No, I'm not like really, I'm not in the right wing space at all. So anything that these organizations get up to, like they're not aiming it at me and I have not heard of any of them. That's fair. That's fair. Um, John Oliver did an episode on ALEC before, so I thought maybe they had come up. Maybe some listeners have seen that. Um, but they're basically a corporate bill mill. They write bills that, um, you know, industry groups and right wing politicians like. That's their whole thing. And they are also funded by Coke Industries. So they have a wide scope that has included things like climate denial, opposing climate action, and promoting false solutions to climate change, which is something that we'll talk about as a form of climate denial later. One interesting thing about ALEC is that, like, so they they get funding from a lot of corporations, uh, but over the last, like, five to ten years, several major corporations have pulled their funding from ALEC over disagreements specifically on their climate denial. So that includes the Ford Motor Company, Google, Microsoft, BP or British Petroleum, and Shell. So 
They're too climate denial-y for Shell. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Shell is like, well, these guys are not the sort of people we want to be bedfellows with. We do like their messaging, but we don't like their delivery. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there are lots and lots and lots of others, but those are some of the prominent ones that you may have heard of. And some of them we'll talk about later. I want to go through a few of the major climate inactivists as well. So these are like the people that are behind climate denial. One of them that we've mentioned already is Frederick Seitz, or the granddaddy of denialism. And he was provided with fossil fuel industry funding in the mid-1980s to create the George C. Marshall Institute, or GMI, um, which has since disbanded but was an important organization in early climate denial. There is also S. Fred Singer. Um, he is the founder of the denial organization Science and Environmental Policy Project. Leaked documents reveal that he received about $5,000 a month from the Heartland Institute, so link to them there. Another big one is um, Bjorn Lomberg. Um, so he's a political scientist and economist, and he's the founder and president of an organization called the Copenhagen Consensus Center, or CCC. CCC is funded by an organization that's connected to sort of the Koch um, network. So they're, not, I think, not directly funded by the Kochs, but um, in that orbit. And he's the author of a couple of books that downplay the risks of climate change. He's also a regular critic of renewable energy. And he's sort of an example of the, the modern version of climate denial because he, he really focuses on arguing that fighting climate change is too expensive to warrant taking action. So it's a delay tactic rather than like he doesn't outright dispute the science. Another one, this is a major politician who's a climate denier, it's Senator James Inhofe. So he's a Republican senator from Oklahoma and the chairman of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. That's where you really want a climate denier, the Committee on Environment. Oh my God. <laughs> he's the chairman? Oh my God. So he's reportedly received over $2 million in political contributions from the fossil fuel industry, uh, which is great. And he once claimed on the Senate floor that man-made global warming is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. So he's dramatic as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, and like right-wingers love a dramatic politician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are lots and lots and lots and lots of other climate deniers, but those are some of the prominent ones. All right. Should we talk about the new climate war now? I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, I guess like because because uh, nowadays it's all about like tricking people into thinking that we're doing something when we're actually not. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's what this phase of the climate war is all about. There are lots of different ways to think about climate denial. Um, and I'm using categories from Michael Mann's book. But, you know, you could find other ways to come up with these categories. They all kind of center around similar tactics. But they're not all exactly the same. So in this one, he talks about deniers. So that's sort of like the old school tactic. Um, you either outright deny the science or you downplay the impact. But then there are newer tactics like climate deflection, climate division, climate delay, and climate doomerism. And together, all of these tactics sort of serve the goal of climate inaction. So it's climate inactivist tactics because the goal is keeping us from actually doing shit on the climate. And it's important to know how to combat all of these different forms. 
All right, we'll start with the straightforward one, which is climate denial and climate disinformation. Um, so it's relatively rare now, but the idea behind this tactic is basically, you know, you sow doubt. If you experience climate denial, um, one form of it is denying the science of climate change. So the reality of human-caused climate change, I, I suppose it needs to be noted, although I'm sure all our listeners know, it is already settled science has been for quite a while. But some climate deniers do continue to promote myths like the idea that climate change is part of a natural cycle or that climate models are unreliable. These myths are untrue, but you do still hear them sometimes. And some hardcore climate uh, deniers will even claim that climate scientists are fixing the data, right? So you can think back to that climate gate example um, as a situation in which that was argued. So all of these arguments are false. There is a clear consensus among scientists that the causes of climate change are known, um, and this has been known for some time. But you might still hear those arguments. Another approach of climate denial is actually attacking the scientists themselves. So this is what's known as the Serengeti strategy. So basically, it's where industry-funded attackers will go after individual scientists, basically like predators trying to pick off vulnerable individuals by isolating them from the herd. Oftentimes, you'll see people sort of attacking the scientists rather than attacking the science, um, but that's also a form of climate denial. And a softer form of climate denial consists of downplaying or dismissing the effects of climate change. I think that's a, a fairly common argument that you still hear today in Canada. It's this like deeply wrong notion that because we're further north, climate change is going to primarily benefit us because warmth is nice. But like that, of course... <laughs> Is not take into account the fact that, you know, we're warming faster than the rest of the world and also that, like, climate creates extremes. <laughs> you don't want that. Yeah. And, like, when, like, maybe we're, like, we're not supposed to be warm. All of our plants and animals are dying. Like, I can't. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know. But the fact that you can still argue that after, like, I mean... The highway blew out in BC last year. That, I, I can't even imagine how expensive that's going to be when they, t like, tally it up. Like, 600 people died in the heat wave last year. Before that, there was, like, three years in a row of, like, terrible wildfire seasons. <laughs> like, it's not great. Yeah, I mean, I was in BC for all of that, and I fucking hated it. So, like, you don't, I don't think you get a lot of the climate deniers in BC being like, oh, it's going to be beneficial to us. You know, I don't think that's a thing that happens in BC too often. It helps that we have the NDP government in charge. So like they're problematic for other reasons, but they're not like nobody's sitting in BC being like, it's going to be good for us to have global warming happen. I think that it might be that might be more if you're looking at Canada specifically, that might be more of a prairie problem. <laughs> oh, I don't know, Kyla. I think the interior BC is fair amount of people to believe that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I don't hang around in the interior too often. Just your metropolitan Vancouver might be a bit of a bubble. But <laughs> my, my grandma would say, oh, you coasters, forget that the rest of us even exist. And I'm like, yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> so for each of these sections, I've tried to have like a how to combat it bit. And I don't know. For climate denial, like, it's relatively rare now. It's mostly confined to the fringe right. So, like, I would say you can mostly ignore it. Fossil fuel companies themselves no longer deny that their product is warming the planet and changing the climate. So, like, there's not a lot of validity. I mean, there's not a lot of, like, people that believe that climate change doesn't exist anymore. So you can largely ignore this one. 
So let's move on to deflection. So this is a form of climate inaction that involves deflecting blame for the impacts of climate change to other causes. Can you think of any examples of that? Yeah, I, I'm sure that there were people during the heat wave last year that killed like 600 people in BC. I'm sure there were people who were like, oh, I remember a hot summer. It just gets hot sometimes. Like, I don't know. I, I, it's hard. The thing about climate change is it's hard to attribute anything specifically to it. You know what I mean? But they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're getting data models now. I was actually, I've been listening to some pod, well, I listen to a lot of podcasts about climate change, but uh, there was one that was talking about how the climate the climate modeling that they're doing nowadays is like, yes, we can actually definitively say <laughs> that this heat wave was caused by global warming. You know, sometimes we get heat waves, they're like, look, okay, yes, maybe this one wouldn't have been caused by, like, would have happened anyways without climate change. But like, not only can we say that like, this was probably caused by climate change. Even if it wasn't, it was made worse because of climate change is something that we're actually having an easier time with. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how many people like are able to deflect anymore. And I think that's going to be a dying issue as well once we have more like data analytics, which we are getting like in the next, I think this year and next year, they're really going to blow up. Yeah. Um, so one example that uh, <laughs> that came to my mind um, of climate deflection. I think yours is like, it just gets hot sometimes is a really great example as well. <laughs> uh, but, but mine's a little sillier. Um, and it's when Trump said that the wildfires in California were caused by raking the forests <laughs> by climate change. Oh my God. <laughs> Deflection campaigns are undertaken for all kinds of other issues as well. And um, it's not just climate change. Um, so it's a well-known corporate tactic to divert attention from other calls for regulatory reform. So it basically places the emphasis on personal behavior and individual action. To give you a couple of famous examples, one of them is the guns don't kill people, people kill people line from the NRA. Another one that you may have heard of is the, quote, crying Indian, unquote, public service announcement from the 1970s. Yeah, I was thinking about that one. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about that one in a bit. Um, but the book also went through a really interesting but less famous example, um, which was the tobacco industry's effort to actually focus attention on flammable furniture. So like there was this whole public debate because a lot of fires, and I think this is still true today, that a lot of fires are cigarette initiated, like people will fall asleep with a cigarette and it'll light the place on fire. At a certain point, burn victims and firefighter groups had been campaigning for the tobacco industry to develop fire-safe cigarettes. And the tobacco industry actually deflected the blame by calling for flame-retardant furniture instead, which was sort of like a double fuck you because those the flame retardants, a lot of them turned out to be toxic. So now we've been having to ban those. <laughs> yeah, it's like wild because like like they won like you you ha like you get mattresses that are flame retardant and you get like pillows that are flame and it's just it's just like poison and it's like god damn like the <laughs> tobacco industry is to blame for that i had no idea for fuck's sake i know that was wild so even though it has nothing to do with climate change i had to put it in yeah <laughs> like holy shit it worked like there's like <sighs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the crying indian ad though so there had been this problem of interstate highway litter that had reached crisis levels by 1970. I think this is kind of nice, like um, a couple of episodes after we did the Paris's book, where he talks about like the growth of highways in like the mid 20th century. 
So with the growth of the highways, you also get like a massive growth of highway litter because at the same time you have the rise of the disposable society and you've got all these like plastic bottles, right? And people are throwing them everywhere. Highway litter had become a really big problem by the 70s. Um, and at the time, Ralph Nader and his group of public interest research groups uh, were campaigning for a bottle bill as a solution to the problem. So a bottle bill basically would have been a law placing a deposit on returnable and refillable bottles and encouraging people to recycle. Um, it would have placed the onus on the beverage industry to process bottles and cans. Some version of that ended up happening in Canada, but in America, it was sort of like spotty whether in which states it occurred. And part of that was because of this ad campaign. So the industry, in addition to this ad campaign, they also spent $2 million on a campaign that opposed bottle bills, um, and it was funneled through a couple of front groups. And the campaign basically depicted bottle bills as being costly for consumers and bad for business, and instead proposed a publicly funded program that involved hiring kids to pick up litter. So like, They've got this lobbying thing happening at the same time as they're funding this ad, like the crying Indian ad, where there's like an Italian guy pretending to be Native American who is like sad about litter and wants everybody to feel bad about the litter that they're leaving. And so this ad, like it really galvanized anti-litter action. So to that extent, it was good. But it also was a really effective part of a campaign to deflect blame for plastic pollution away from the beverage industry and towards the individual. So I think that's a really sort of interesting history there. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because I think that was one of the first times that the industry really nailed it when it comes to passing the buck to the consumer, which is now the number one way, I would say, that climate denialism is happening is like your personal carbon footprint. You have to solve it on your own. You're a bad person if you create any garbage. And it's like, no, how am I supposed to exist in this world when I am like out and I need to go eat some food and every fast food restaurant has just disposable stuff instead of plates? Like, that's not something I have control over. It's like, oh, so just don't eat out? Like, fuck you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's 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 wild how similar the two um, strategies are. And deflection campaigns, like, they often use that tactic of trying to sort of push the responsibility onto either the individual or onto the government. Anybody but the companies, basically. <laughs> so I, I wanted to put together some notes on how to recognize climate deflection. So in general, um, one way to notice it is that deflection campaigns will often use front groups that present themselves as grassroots efforts. So to give you one example, um, Citizens for Fire Safety is the chemical industry front group that opposes legislative efforts to ban, flame, ban hazardous flame retardants in furniture, just to carry on with that theme. So that'll often happen with deflection campaigns. Um, we've already been through some of the, the climate ones. Deflection campaigns, they often use compelling but inauthentic storytelling to make their point. So if you hear about sort of like hypothetical businesses or hypothetical people that might be impacted, that's often a sign of a deflection campaign. Deflection campaigns, uh, they often promote alternatives that push costs onto individuals or to the government. Um, and in the context of climate change, that deflection often aims to make it seem like the climate crisis is your fault. So we were talking about personal carbon footprints. 
Um, and that concept was actually promoted by BP, British Petroleum, in the early 2000s. So they actually launched one of the first personal carbon footprint calculators, which that blew my mind. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, sure, it's horrific, but it does make total sense when you stop to think about it. You're like, oh, that's a brilliant move. It's a brilliant move. It I mean, we're still using carbon calculators now. Like, it's a useful tool. They really gave us a useful tool. So, I like, that's what made it so successful, right? Like, it's fascinating. What an interesting thing that they did. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's really complicated, too, because some of these tools are things that are part of the climate solution, but they're being weaponized to promote climate inaction. And how do you deal with that? It's a really big question. These are sort of common narratives. In 2018, Chevron argued in court that it's the way that people are living their lives that's driving climate change. So this is like something you do hear from industry directly. Um, and these narratives are important because they create something called seepage, which is basically the infiltration of contrarian framing into mainstream climate discourse. So people often talk about individual behavior changes before they're going to mention systemic solutions, right? So if you ask people like what you should do to address climate change, they'll often say like stop eating meat or turn off the lights, which is true. But they'll say that way before they say something like, you know, keep fossil fuels in the ground, which is a systemic solution <laughs> or support public transit, things like that. So how do you combat deflection? I think the first thing is to be aware of efforts that present individual solutions as a viable alternative to collective action on climate change. So this plays on a false dilemma, right? So it is true that individual behavior changes are important, um, but we also cannot make progress without collective action. And deflection campaigns often aim to sabotage systemic solutions. Another thing you can do is to avoid behavior shaming impurity tests. So these kinds of things reinforce the narrative that climate deflectors are trying to promote. So things like flight shaming or meat shaming are things that, as climate advocates, we probably shouldn't do. They're not helpful and they play into the hand of climate deflectors. Well, and if you're shaming somebody, they're not really likely to come on side with your issue. So it's like it's not helping you at all to do that, you know, like... <laughs> Definitely. So yeah, we've been through sort of a history of climate denial. We've talked about climate denial and climate deflection. And this is a good point, I think, to split the episode up because we're going to talk about three more common climate denial tactics. So division, delay, and doomsaying. That's going to be next episode. Definitely stay tuned for that one. Great. Well, I'm excited. Is that the right word to talk about, <laughs> especially the the climate doomism? Because I think right before we started this podcast, I was slipping into doomism. And so I I think it's an easy one for people who care almost as much as we do or more than we do to like really slip into. So I'm really interested to hear what you found out about that. In the meantime, if listeners want to reach us, they can get us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast or you can leave us a voice memo in the, <laughs> in the show notes. There's a link. I don't think we've gotten one yet. I should check. I checked last week and I don't think we had one. So send us a nice little message. Just say hi. 
And if you want to get us on Instagram, I have moved to the Pullback Podcast Instagram account because I got locked out of my own. So if you want to see a picture of my new tattoo or some dank memes, then, you know, catch us there. <laughs> uh, although I have like had to tone down my meme sharing because Kristen and I are both attached to the account and I don't want her to get in trouble for like me posting like, blow up a pipeline, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you very soon on part two of this episode.